Pastor Xavier Reese and the simple truths of a son given and a savior to be sacrificed. What king ever abandoned his throne for his people? What king ever died for the worst of mankind? God took on human flesh, but he emptied himself not of his deity, but of his glory. And he humbled himself and was obedient to the death of the cross. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Isaiah chapter 9 presented quite the prophecy for the significance of Christmas. Jesus would later claim to be the Messiah, the Christ, the child born into the house of David, the son given by God to be the long-expected king. And though the first advent of Jesus established his identity, it didn't begin his reign, however. But coming up, as Pastor Xavier marvels at God's gift to us, he urges we look forward to prophecy yet to be fulfilled at his second coming. Let's listen. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. And the message is entitled, Jesus, God's Son, and Gift. Something that is um, really uncomprehendable to us to its full end, and yet absolutely truth in every way whatsoever. And so Isaiah the prophet in our text here gives to us three things regarding the Messiah that were prophetic. He says, 9, verse 6 through 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so Isaiah gives to us three things that are so incredibly from the prophetic standpoint because, as you know, prophecy is speaking forward something that hasn't happened yet and absolutely guaranteeing that it will happen exactly as is declared. And when it happens, it can be confirmed and verified by the very event itself that was predicted hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before its time. Here he gives us three things, the mystery of his birth, the beginning of verse 6, second, the character of his kingdom in verse 7, and then you have the nature of his office there at the end of verse 6 there. Notice the prophet Isaiah here prophesied, for unto us a child is born. The proclamation announced the birth of a child focusing on this humanity of birth. The particular statement describes the normal process that God would use to accomplish this mystery. Everyone's familiar with the normal birth of a child after nine months. The particular statement describes this normal process, and the people notice to whom it is addressed to would be the Jews. God chose the nation of Israel to represent him and to speak through and to direct and guide to prepare 
to be the instrument for the Messiah to come. The pronoun us speaks of this Jewish nation. But at the same time, the pronoun us also encompasses the human race because way back in Genesis 12, 3, God said, and you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So God, in his extreme misunderstood love from the worldly perspective, but very clear to the believer, in his loving compassion, he always included all of fallen mankind. But he began with a nation, and he tried to use that nation to give a picture and a representation of his love and grace, but they failed to a great extent, taking that badge as self-righteousness rather than to proclaim the righteousness of God that he would give to others if they trusted him. And the phrase for unto us refers to our good or advantage that would come to us, not to his own person, not only to Isaiah. And certainly it isn't for the good of God. Because if you know that, what could God gain from me? What good could he gain from you? It's all one-sided at this point. So Jewish and Gentile sinners, and that's the way God saw the world in the Old Testament, two categories. In the New Testament, you have Jew, Gentile, the church of God, which includes Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus. And that's the way God looks at the world. God doesn't look at the world as black, white, brown, yellow, red, he doesn't look at the world as rich, poor. Those are all uh, classifications that man uses to manipulate man to get his plan done, whatever it is that that man is using. That, that's what we do. We pit people against one another. We divide people in categories. But God looks upon the human race as fallen and in need of salvation. For this reason, we have this text that gives us a great Savior, Jesus Christ. The promise regarding the birth of this child was not new. It was all throughout the Old Testament. It was first given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. And I've told you often that the woman has no um, seed in herself. She has the egg. It's the man that provides the seed. And the two come together. And all of a sudden, there's another human being that's made incredibly Micah said it would be in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Malachi spoke of his first and his second coming. So this prophetic aspect, this particular here, is nothing new. It's all over the Old Testament and fulfilling the new. But Isaiah, the prophet, next prophesied, unto us a son is given. And here the proclamation focuses on, on the divinity of the child, not only human but divine. The only begotten son of the father. Uh, the son of his love, if you look at John 3.16. The combined statement describes the person of the mystery here. He's human and yet divine at the same time. Now, you and I understand each other to be human, but none of us believe we're divine. Though some would teach such things under philosophy and cultic practices, but the fact that you are going to eventually die proves that you're not divine. You are a created creature. You did not just happen to come to be by some accident of man, but God created you after his image, after his likeness. You have a body, soul, and spirit. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are an inferior trinity. The body will go back to the ground. My soul deals with the aspect of my intellect, my emotion, and my will. And the spirit is the real me. 
Once I'm born again, my spirit's alive. I worship God. The plural pronoun us is also, again, dealing with both Jewish and Gentile. The promise of divinity of this child, again, is found throughout the Old Testament. Each lamb was to be slain, and the blood, the blood was a token to be put on the horns of the altar for an atonement, a covering. Every animal sacrifice pictured the true Lamb of God to come. In John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. The one to fulfill all things, the true atonement of that blood, all other blood of animals that began in Genesis 3.21 was prophetic of Jesus Christ. It was just a covering. While the New Testament is at one minute, it made you one with God. It made you whiter than snow if you called upon him. It cleansed you from all sin. And if you know anything about the color red, it is the hardest color to paint over. You need three or four coats, and you better have a good primer underneath it. One coat of the blood of Jesus Christ will make you whiter than snow. Regardless of whatever's happened in your life, regardless of whatever you've committed, for he is the sin bearer of the world. Isaiah the prophet prophesied also about the Messiah to come that one day he would fulfill this exact prophecy, both human and divine. Matthew declared the fulfillment of this child and identified his name as Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 and 2. Emmanuel, God with us. A baby that was nine months in the womb of Mary and then he came forth. And he grew up like anybody else, and yet he was God in the flesh. The process of God becoming man is given to us in many portions of Scripture. In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and God was the Word. And then in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God took on human flesh. Paul the Apostle describes it for us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. This says, being in the form of God. He didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself, what's called the kenosis. He emptied himself not of his deity, but of his glory. And he took on the form of a servant. And he humbled himself and was obedient to the death of the cross. And for that reason, a name has been given to him above every other name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right now, he initiates his love that people would bow willfully by his grace and his love to acknowledge what he's done for them. When he returns the second time, it will not be voluntarily. It will be forceful. It will be for judgment. You as parents know that when you give your child a chance to repent or to confess or to admit whatever they've done, that you will be merciful and more lenient. But if you know what he's done, he still tries to cover it up, and you have to force that truth upon him, the punishment is much more severe. So to us, we are a teacher to ourselves, the lesser to the greater. If we function that way, how much more God, who is purer than the heavens, who cannot look upon sin with any sense of condonance. And every judgment he makes will be absolutely just because he cannot violate his holiness. You know, the chance of probability with prophecy increases with each condition in a prophecy. One prophecy with just four factors 
would make it to be one in 90 billion, 823 million, 680,000 to one. <laughs> Just one prophecy, four factors. You take the average prophecy, six to seven factors. Do you think it was coincidence that Jesus was born the way he was, lived the way he did, died the way he did, and rose from the dead, and we're just going to write it off as coincidence? Or that he was really, really lucky? <laughs> Many of those prophecies while he was still hanging on the cross. Now, if he fulfilled over 300 in his first coming, what would possess you or I to believe that he's not going to fulfill the rest of them, including the second coming? You know God can't lie, right? You and I can and do. <laughs> Pastor Xavier Reese and the simple truths of a son given and a savior to be sacrificed. What king ever abandoned his throne for his people? What king ever died for the worst of mankind? God took on human flesh, but he emptied himself not of his deity, but of his glory. And he humbled himself and was obedient to the death of the cross. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Isaiah chapter 9 presented quite the prophecy for the significance of Christmas. Jesus would later claim to be the Messiah, the Christ, the child born into the house of David, the son given by God to be the long-expected king. And though the first advent of Jesus established his identity, it didn't begin his reign, however. But coming up, as Pastor Xavier marvels at God's gift to us, he urges we look forward to prophecy yet to be fulfilled at his second coming. Let's listen. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. And the message is entitled, Jesus, God's Son, and Gift. Something that is um, really uncomprehendable to us to its full end, and yet absolutely truth in every way whatsoever. And so Isaiah the prophet in our text here gives to us three things regarding the Messiah that were prophetic. He says, 9, verse 6 through 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so Isaiah gives to us three things that are so incredibly from the prophetic standpoint, because as you know, prophecy is speaking forward something that hasn't happened yet, and absolutely guaranteeing that it will happen exactly as is declared. And when it happens, it can be confirmed and verified by the very event itself that was predicted hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before its time. 
Here he gives us three things. The mystery of his birth, the beginning of verse 6. Second, the character of his kingdom in verse 7. And then you have the nature of his office there at the end of verse 6 there. Notice the prophet Isaiah here prophesied, for unto us a child is born. The proclamation announced the birth of a child focusing on his humanity of birth. The particular statement describes the normal process that God would use to accomplish this mystery. Everyone's familiar with the normal birth of a child after nine months. The particular statement describes this normal process, and the people notice to whom it is addressed to would be the Jews. God chose the nation of Israel to represent him and to speak through and to direct and guide, to prepare to be the instrument for the Messiah to come. The pronoun us speaks of this Jewish nation, but at the same time, the pronoun us also encompasses the human race because way back in Genesis 12, 3, God said, and you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So God, in his extreme misunderstood love from the worldly perspective, but very clear to the believer, in his loving compassion, he always included all of fallen mankind. But he began with a nation, and he tried to use that nation to give a picture and a representation of his love and grace, but they failed to a great extent, taking that badge as self-righteousness rather than to proclaim the righteousness of God that he would give to others if they trusted him. And the phrase for unto us refers to our good or advantage that would come to us, not to his own person, not only to Isaiah. And certainly it isn't for the good of God. Because if you know that, what could God gain from me? What good could he gain from you? It's all one-sided at this point. So Jewish and Gentile sinners, and that's the way God saw the world in the Old Testament, two categories. In the New Testament, you have Jew, Gentile, the church of God, which includes Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus. And that's the way God looks at the world. God doesn't look at the world as black, white, brown, yellow, red, he doesn't look at the world as rich, poor. Those are all uh, classifications that man uses to manipulate man to get his plan done, whatever it is that that man is using. That, that's what we do. We pit people against one another. We divide people in categories. But God looks upon the human race as fallen and in need of salvation. For this reason, we have this text that gives us a great Savior, Jesus Christ. The promise regarding the birth of this child was not new. It was all throughout the Old Testament. It was first given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. And I've told you often that the woman has no um, seed in herself. She has the egg. It's the man that provides the seed. And the two come together. And all of a sudden, there's another human being that's made incredibly Micah said it would be in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Malachi spoke of his first and his second coming. So this prophetic aspect, this particular here, is nothing new. It's all over the Old Testament and fulfilling the new. But Isaiah the prophet next prophesied, unto us a son is given. And here the proclamation focuses on, on the divinity of the child, not only human but divine. The only begotten son of the father. Uh, the son of his love, if you look at John 3, 16. 
The combined statement describes the person of the mystery here. He's human and yet divine at the same time. Now, you and I understand each other to be human, but none of us believe we're divine, though some would teach such things under philosophy and cultic practices. But the fact that you are going to eventually die proves that you're not divine. You are a created creature. You did not just happen to come to be by some accident of man, but God created you after his image, after his likeness. You have a body, soul, and spirit. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are an inferior trinity. The body will go back to the ground. My soul deals with the aspect of my intellect, my emotion, and my will. And the spirit is the real me. Once I'm born again, my spirit's alive. I worship God. The plural pronoun us is also, again, dealing with both Jewish and Gentile. The promise of divinity of this child, again, is found throughout the Old Testament. Each lamb was to be slain, and the blood, the blood was a token to be put on the horns of the altar for an atonement, a covering. Every animal sacrifice pictured the true Lamb of God to come. In John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. The one to fulfill all things, the true atonement of that blood, all other blood of animals that began in Genesis 3.21 was prophetic of Jesus Christ. It was just a covering. While the New Testament is at one minute, it made you one with God. It made you whiter than snow if you called upon him. It cleansed you from all sin. And if you know anything about the color red, it is the hardest color to paint over. You need three or four coats, and you better have a good primer underneath it. One coat of the blood of Jesus Christ will make you whiter than snow. Regardless of whatever's happened in your life, regardless of whatever you've committed, for he is the sin bearer of the world. Isaiah the prophet prophesied also about the Messiah to come that one day he would fulfill this exact prophecy, both human and divine. Matthew declared the fulfillment of this child and identified his name as Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 and 2. Emmanuel, God with us. A baby that was nine months in the womb of Mary and then he came forth. And he grew up like anybody else, and yet he was God in the flesh. The process of God becoming man is given to us in many portions of Scripture. In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and God was the Word. And then in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God took on human flesh. Paul the Apostle describes it for us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. This says, being in the form of God. He didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself, what's called the kenosis. He emptied himself not of his deity, but of his glory. And he took on the form of a servant. And he humbled himself and was obedient to the death of the cross. And for that reason, a name has been given to him above every other name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right now, he initiates his love that people would bow willfully by his grace and his love to acknowledge what he's done for them. When he returns the second 
time, it will not be voluntarily. It will be forceful. It will be for judgment. You as parents know that when you give your child a chance to repent or to confess or to admit whatever they've done, that you will be merciful and more lenient. But if you know what he's done, he still tries to cover it up, and you have to force that truth upon him, the punishment is much more severe. So to us, we are a teacher to ourselves, the lesser to the greater. If we function that way, how much more God, who is purer than the heavens, who cannot look upon sin with any sense of condolence, and every judgment he makes will be absolutely just because he cannot violate his holiness. You know, the chance of probability with prophecy increases with each condition in a prophecy. One prophecy with just four factors would make it to be one in 90 billion, 823 million, 680,000 to one. Just one prophecy, four factors. You take the average prophecy, six to seven factors. Do you think it was coincidence that Jesus was born the way he was, lived the way he did, died the way he did, and rose from the dead, and we're just going to write it off as coincidence? Or that he was really, really lucky? <laughs> many of those prophecies while he was still hanging on the cross. Now, if he fulfilled over 300 in his first coming, what would possess you or I to believe that he's not going to fulfill the rest of them, including the second coming? You know God can't lie, right? You and I can and do. 